Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Yeah. Hey, if only you could see me now. I got this like big goofy smile. Welcome you <laughs> to Porch Talk. This is your host, Alan. We are at Old Elegante Studios in Birmingham, Alabama. I got Chad Fisher here with me. Here's a song called Burn Me. Then we'll get started.
again Come on summer burn me Make me shed my skin Burn me, burn me Make me shed my winter skin starters man how you doing i'm doing good man thanks appreciate for having you. me i appreciate you taking the time man yeah yeah um well luckily right now there's plenty of time. yeah there's an abundance of it <laughs> so man tell me a little bit about growing up and uh just where you were from and what you were into when you were a kid um well i grew up about an hour and a half south of here in a small place called deetsville alabama uh, Marbury, Alabama would be where I went to school, Marbury High School. And uh, I always tell people that it's uh, in between Prattville and Clanton, if you've ever been on 65 South and you know where the go to church or the devil will get you sign is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the giant Confederate flag, that's where I grew up. Um, so, yeah, I was born and raised down there. Um, went to school in Troy. And uh, came up here to finish school and got busy playing music. And, uh, yeah, here I am. I never finished school. <laughs> uh, strike that from the record, kids. Stay in school. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I, I grew, up, uh, grew up down there. I mean, I could talk at length about that. I guess you asked when I was younger, I started playing the trombone in the fifth grade in the school band. Uh, what made you want to do that? Your parents? Or? Yeah, I think I was probably pushed. My sister was in the high school band, and um, it just seemed like a good fit, I guess, at the time. You know, some, that's a very long time ago. But I was asked to play trombone, a very small band that just needed whatever players I could get, and we didn't have any trombone players. So... Uh, the band director at the time, who was a great teacher of mine, Mr. Ted Mann, was the band director down there, uh, put me on trombone. I don't ever remember choosing. I think I was like most kids, and most kids either want to play drums or saxophone. Mm -hmm. um, but I got put on trombone, and I learned to play two days a week after school in the fifth grade. I tried to quit. My mom wouldn't let me. And uh, now... 30 years later, here I am. <laughs> yeah. So just, just a little bit before that, um, was there a lot of music in the home? Did mom and dad play records or mom, was church a thing? Or? Yeah, church was huge. Uh, my mom was the church pianist at our very small Baptist church, which was an independent Baptist congregation that had split off from a local Southern Baptist church with some, uh, you know, theological differences i guess you yeah. know uh as, like most baptist yeah about you know little churches uh tend to tend to do you know but uh i grew up in a small independent baptist church my mom was uh the church pianist she was and she still does that now she's back in the southern baptist church now uh the small church that i grew up in is, is no more um 
it was small enough that once we all kind of grew up, our preacher kind of called it. But uh, so my mom played piano and she played piano around the house and, and uh, mostly uh, hymns, of course, but she also played some classical pieces and a lot of ragtime and things like that. And um, she wouldn't call herself an improviser, but she does improvise. Um, kind of embellishes what she sees on a on a hymnal. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I had that influence. My dad, not so much. My dad, you know, he loves to listen to music. He would listen to a lot of country music. Uh, but probably the biggest influence when I was very young was my grandfather on my mother's side who lived nearby uh, our house when I grew up and spent most every day with my grandparents growing up. And my granddad grew up in the World War II era mm-hmm. and uh, was actually stationed in Manhattan for a time during World War II, and he would tell me stories about going to, you know, 52nd Street and hearing all of these jazz bands, and, you know, he, he, he saw all of the swing era big bands in their prime, and uh, he would listen to that stuff, so if we went to, he, he used to love to go to Clanton, which was one of the near, near towns, nearby towns, and uh, we would just ride up there, and he would go get a cup of coffee at Hardee's in the paper that he couldn't get in mm-hmm. Deedsville that came from Birmingham. He'd go up there to buy his paper. And I remember, I always remember listening to jazz with him, you know, swing and, and uh, Dixieland jazz, and uh, he just loved it. So I think when I, you know, un, unbeknownst to me at the time as a kid, I got that early influence and kind of got it stuck in my ear so that by the time I picked up the trombone I had some concept of of what what it was supposed to sound like or what it could do I guess yeah so my I think probably outside of just the direct influence of my mother playing piano my my grandfather who also played a little piano by ear you know just kind of was a hobby musician yeah Yeah. so you mentioned you know wanting to quit and um you know fifth, fifth sixth grade um that's early for something like trombone. Maybe it's not, but definitely for our area. Yeah, it is. I think um, it was kind of an anomaly. Uh, for one thing, it was being out in the country and out of necessity trying to get kids in younger to just fill out the numbers of the band, and it just worked out that way. But most most public school music programs start beginners in the sixth grade, and uh, and you're in you know middle school band until high school and you start marching in the band in the ninth grade. But for me, it was learn to play two days a week after school in the fifth grade and then sixth grade slap on a band uniform and play at halftime on Friday nights. So I, I got an earlier start than, than a lot of kids would. And honestly, that probably helped me a lot in many ways. So throughout middle school and high school, with a uh, high school band, would that – would that be uh, your passion and hobby for that entirety, or was there anything else? I suppose it was what I was good at, you know. I mean, just like any kid, I was uh, probably not as focused, you know. I, I think with music, uh, and once uh, I got through that first year, I was very frustrated, and, you know, I did want to quit, and my mom wouldn't let me. She made me see it through. But by the end of the year, it, some kind of light bulb went off, and uh, it was evident that this was something that I was taking to, 
kind of naturally. So yeah, I think uh, music, uh, I, you know, I don't think I knew it so much at the time, but I, I think it probably was my main passion. I, I used to like to draw and I did art and I actually started out college with the intent of doing graphic design and, and studying arts. But I think uh, just as I got more into music and started playing more music in college and started, uh, I started playing in a band in college outside of school, you yeah. know, and that kind of thing. It, and then just started to kind of happen organically after that. Where uh, where'd you go to college? In Troy. Troy. So, uh, Troy. Yeah. yeah. So Troy, uh, was that out of closeness or why Troy? I, I think, uh, for, well, number one, because I got a scholarship there. Uh, I got what it, at the time was a leadership, leadership scholarship from my um, experience in high school band at that point. By the time I was a senior, I'd racked up the accolades, all state band and honor bands and being a section leader and, and leader in the band and that kind of thing. And um, my grades were just good enough, probably wouldn't have been good enough to get a full scholarship at, uh, at another more major university, Alabama or Auburn or somewhere, but, but Troy was a good fit and it was paid for so it just made sense to go. Also, my my band director was an alumnus of the Troy Band, which has a good reputation. The Sounds of the South, especially down in that era area, mm -hmm. you know, everybody knows the the tradition of the Sound of the South. So it just seemed like everything just kind of pointed and made sense it, to go there. You know. And so while you were there, you mentioned uh, college bands and all. Uh, what was that like transitioning from playing, um, you know, like a high school or college band to playing in like out at the bars or what did that look like well i mean because it's more free form right well i mean it was a it was a kind of a rock and blues cover band and we were in the horn section um some good good friends of mine had started a band and decided to add some horns and i was kind of young and just getting into their social circles and they asked me to join. And um, so we started playing just bars around the state and uh, frat parties and that kind of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it was a different kind of thing. That the, the, the couple of years that that band was in existence, it really also just put money in my wallet. At the, at the time, you know, um, after a football game in Troy, we'd go play the front porch down there, which was one of the local dive bars, you know, where all the, the – uh, college students would go after a football game or wherever to go to party on a, on a weeknight and we would play play there so it was kind of an education really just uh i didn't grow up like i said i grew up pretty strict baptist mm -hmm. and was raised to stay out of places like that you know exactly yeah uh so i end up there playing music and not only just playing music but getting uh getting paid quite well to do it uh for a college student, you know, I, there were nights I could walk out of the front porch in Troy, Alabama in 1997 or whatever with $300 cash in my wallet, you know, which was better than you would do working two weeks at Winn-Dixie or whatever. So, Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, it, it definitely got me hooked on uh, just playing music for people outside of an academic or an educational setting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, obviously snowballed from there. Yeah. 
at that time, like, who were some of the influences um, that you were listening to uh, as far as, like, maybe the sound of or some of the covers that y'all were doing? This particular band in Troy was called Catfish Blues. Um, that I don't remember how we came up with that name, but our, our, our front man was a great guitarist, um, Carrie Hudson. I don't I don't know where he is now, but if if Carrie, if you somehow listen to this podcast, look me up and give me a <laughs> ring. I'd love to know how you're doing. But uh, he really loved Stevie Ray Vaughan and, and almost sounded just just like him. Oh, wow. uh, so we did a lot of Stevie Ray Vaughan covers and a lot of classic rock covers. And at the time, you know, we were just like any cover band anywhere. You know, we did a lot of the standard kind of covers superstition stevie wonder superstition you know all of the cc strut uh, mm-hmm. a lot of the covers that become standards in those kind of bar bands you know over the over the decades so yeah um you so, know that was a that was an interesting experience just because it was something you know playing rock and roll on the trombone or you yeah. know and doing something different else like i said outside of an educational setting was a big a big thing for me at the time whether I knew it or not so uh, what happens after Troy um, did you would you come to Birmingham or where would you go next and why I um I wasn't doing well academically at Troy and had made some missteps largely a lot of times uh, number one I'm just not a good student I'm not very disciplined I might be slightly better at it now i'm not sure i I still have nightmares about having to go back to school so i I hope i never have to uh but um where was i going with that we were talking about got off track oh moving moving moving. but i wasn't doing well academically at troy and uh i was studying music education i was going to be a band director or uh, that's at least what i was studying to try to get a degree at the time and uh, I had hit kind of a wall in that I, my GPA was not good enough to get into the professional program to move on with my teaching and internship. And I was going to have to go back and take all these core classes just to get my GPA up. And I was like, well, if Troy doesn't have a music performance major or just a music major that I could fall back on and just get a degree. It was only music education there. So, you know, and, I, and by that point I was in my fifth year and it just seemed like it was time to go so I looked into UAB which did have just a general music major where I would not have to go and do the professional course I could still get a degree mm-hmm. uh, so I transferred to UAB in 2001 do you um, know anybody from here yet yeah I actually uh, one of our grad assistants another catalyst for moving and, and leaving Troy was a guy named Shane Porter who was a trumpet player and uh, Shane was there studying arranging. Our band director at the time was a guy named Robert W. Smith, which in the band world is a pretty reputable uh, composer and arranger clinician. Who um, Shane was there studying, and and uh, but Shane was an excellent trumpet player, and and still is, and still primarily is a com- composer and arranger now. But uh, he was studying there. But he he played in he played in horn sections, big horn sections from in Tuscaloosa and here in, in Nashville, and knew a lot of people. 
and they played gigs with the Temptations and the Four Tops and the OJs and okay. stuff like that. So those guys would get called when a lot of those old Motown bands and, and old big bands like that would travel, and they still do this to this day when you're able to travel, I suppose. My last gig before the pandemic was literally with the Temptations, and then their shutdown happened. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, st- I've, I'm still doing it to this day, but Shane got me on a Temptations gig when I was still in Troy. And How old were you? 23, 22 or 23, I guess, by that point. How did that phone call or conversation go? Well, I mean, I guess <laughs> Shane had kind of, you know... Uh, Shane, but Shane was really the catalyst there to to uh, to put me in touch and kind of put in a word for me, like, "Hey, this kid down here is really good. He can play." And he put me in touch with a guy named Mart Avent, who is the contractor for a lot of these horn sections. So uh, they called me, and obviously, when when you get a phone call like that, you say yes, and you go and do it. And I went and played with the Temptations in Marksville, Louisiana, somewhere around 1999 or 2000, probably 2000, I guess. Uh, and you know that was a professionally a, a different ball game. You know, outside of just playing in a bar gig or whatever, you had to you show up to play with the Temptations, even if it's in a shitty Louisiana casino. You, you know, you're still expected to have a certain level of musicianship. So yeah, it kind of pushed me into a larger world. And uh, I, there was a big band that used to play at a jazz club here called Ona's Music Room which uh, only in the last couple of years has, has gone kaput. And I, I miss that place. I was just talking with my girlfriend about this the other day. But there was a big band, a jazz, uh, what you would call a reading band. That, you know, big band is big swing orchestra. But you would come in and we'd have all these charts. And it met twice a month. And I started coming before I moved here. Uh, I would come from Troy and I would play in that band twice a month. So I was making connections and meeting people through these avenues, and uh, it seemed like once that predicament happened when I was in school at Troy about not being able to proceed immediately with a music education degree uh, and to move up here to get another just general music degree, and Mm -hmm. that combined with all of these gig connections and things that I was getting at the time uh, was... You know, it just made sense to just move up here because I had these gigs and it seemed like I could get in school up here. I could fl- float by on some grants and student loans and maybe hopefully get some gigs outside of outside of school that could that could uh, pay my way. My, my family's not wealthy, so I couldn't I couldn't depend on them to just pay my way. I had to figure it out. So I moved up here with the chance of getting another degree and uh, and also to play music and. In the end, after a year or so, the, the music took over the academic side of things. And un- unfortunately, I never finished my degree because I started doing more tours with The Temptations and things like that. And also just meeting people here and joining different bands here in Birmingham at the time. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, then I've been here ever since. So, I mean, just small town Alabama and gets called up to play for the Temptations. Like, uh, what are, what's, what's some of your favorite memories or, uh, with those guys, like maybe the venue or situation? 
you know, um, it's hard to say right offhand. I know that when I first started doing that, it was funny because my mom, growing up, listened to oldies radio. Uh-huh. And in the in the 80s, uh, the oldies radio was a lot of Motown and doo-wop <coughs> and 50s groups. And I had listened to this stuff and been inundated with it my whole life. So, for instance, uh, the first gig I ever played with the Four Tops was down in Mobile for the... Uh, music festival that they used to have there maybe they still oh, do you oh, said you're from mobile so yeah you I'm, probably I'm, they that. don't call it that no more yeah. it's called it was called bay fest uh but before that it had a different name it was a different name before and now that. it's called like i i i 6510 because you know it's right definitely there. wasn't called that when it happened but i played with the four tops there and i remember like as i played the show you have to sight read this stuff which mm-hmm. is nerve-wracking in and of itself, especially when you're like me and you're not, I'm a better sight reader now than I was then when I was a kid, but I wasn't a good sight reader. Did you feel like when those calls you first started getting and you were sight reading that you were kind of phoning it in or maybe bullshitting? I would never phone it in. Uh, I wouldn't say I would phone it in, but bullshitting, yes. Uh, I would just do the best that I could. Yeah. I, I really would do the best that I could. And there were moments in those early years where my sight reading was not up to par there might be other players that couldn't play uh, the horn necessarily. I hate to even say this. It makes me sound like a jerk or whatever. But maybe they, they didn't play the horn like I did or they didn't play creatively like I did mm-hmm. from an artistic or a jazz musician standpoint or from an improviser standpoint. But but they could read better and they could execute that model of playing better than I could. So honestly, in those days... There were a lot of people that stuck their neck out for me, but uh, before I get off on that, uh, that that first four top show was kind of funny because I'm listening and, and playing the show, and I'm realizing like I know all of these songs, and I didn't even know who the band was. Yeah, it's and just I was like I knew radio. all of these songs, and it was kind of fascinating. And then you know later I figured out and got a little bit more up on my history, but. Yeah, those those days were interesting in playing in that world because I did have to sight read and I had to be up to a certain level of professional professionalism that maybe at the time I wasn't quite ready for, uh, just from a maturity standpoint, mentally. Uh, and when you're a kid, you know, you know everything when you're 22. And, oh, yeah. And except Got the you world don't. by the tail, too. Yeah, except you don't. Yeah, yeah. You, you figure you that out later. Yeah. yeah, you figure that out later. So, so there were there were a lot of times where um, the first time I ever played with the OJ's, I bombed. Um, these books, a lot of times um, now and then, have been just kind of Frankensteined over the years. When you have this horn book in front of you, and I'm looking at this handwritten OJ's book with all of these different cuts and markings and all this stuff and I can barely see the MD who's uh, conducting us through this and I bombed that first gig and um, you know if it wasn't for people sticking their neck out for me guys like Mart Avant that I mentioned earlier going to bat for me with some of these guys that were like no you know I, I really appreciate that can't stress that enough that a lot of these people had faith in me not only just to hire me from the get go but also to stick their neck out for me Mm-hmm. after I screwed up, uh, yeah. you know, which is huge. Uh, so I've always been very grateful for that. But, uh, you know, 
in the end, I ended up playing with the OJs a lot more and learning and getting a lot better and, and having a deeper respect for the craft of just playing trombone professionally in that way. Do you ever ever have that like sinking fear, like maybe after one of those bombing experiences that you weren't going to get another phone call? I still have that fear. <laughs> I think um, I think any artist or musician is going to have that self doubt, and then when you know it's a situation like that where you, where you know that you didn't cut it it's even worse because it, you know you can lie to yourself and it, honestly if you're the kind of guy that wants to say that you're the greatest in the world or whatever then you probably aren't going to be doing this anyway um, yeah. for very long so yeah I mean uh, I think that fear I think I could uh, I could write a hit song and go on tour with my own band under the name Chad Fisher tomorrow and uh, I would still wake up with that fear of the of not having the phone ring again yeah I, I think and you learn to live with that and you just kept with it you figure it out yeah yeah and so just back to uh living in birmingham and we're at uab you're picking up these gigs and sometimes touring out with four tops or temptations um what else was going on during this time uh the, the birmingham scene was getting bigger and better yeah i um I'm, I, I met a guy named Mark Lanner, another guy that you might want to interview, maybe. Uh, and uh, he had, he was a drummer, but I also met, he's older than I am, but also at the same time I met uh, Steve Lewis and Matt Devine, who had a band called Downright. And uh, Downright was a very popular club band at the time, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you could go back in those days and, and go play in a bar and you could walk out with bank, which is, it's funny to me that you could do that in 2001 and it's very difficult to just go play at a random bar on a Thursday or Friday night now and walk out with three or $400 in your wallet. That doesn't really happen that way. No, it's like, just our, our culture has just changed. Yeah, we'll give you five or six beers and give you a hundred bucks a head. If you maybe. get a hundred dollars, yeah. yeah maybe. If, if you get a hundred dollars, so I think that's a whole different conversation. Uh, but our culture has changed and, and pivoted from that kind of a situation. But they asked me to join Downright, and that inter that introduced me to a plethora of younger musicians. Uh, here in Birmingham. So, you know, Downright played original music and also played kind of like choice covers at the times, maybe things that weren't so cliche. Mm -hmm. uh, we would play Outkast as opposed to, you know, Motown. Uh, nice. And so we, uh, I joined Downright and, and that opened, just meeting those guys and uh, a lot of those guys had graduated from Alabama and come from elsewhere and just meeting a lot of younger people at that time. And around that time, I started my own band as well. And uh, everything just kind of grew, grew from there. You know, I feel like a, a lot of my professional life and there would be a lot of people that would agree with me, I, I think, is just about making connections and and pers personal connections you know, or, or 
or if not half the battle, even more. You know, you need to be able to play. But I know a lot of guys that can play better than me, you know. But if you don't ever leave your house and you don't go out and meet people and you don't go do something, then, you know, you're not going to be able to do anything. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, like today is um, I've got cousins graduating high school and family, different family members. And I've got two different college degrees, and they'll ask me is, uh, you know, recommendations for college where would you go what, what would you do now and I tell them straight up is I don't know if I would go to college right now the main thing that you're paying for if you go to an Alabama or an Auburn or a more prestigious school and this is going to be totally up to you is yeah you're going to get a piece of paper that comes from that school that'll help you for sure get a job but what's important is those connections that you'll make along the way, these Absolutely, people that yeah. you're going to meet. And that is what you're looking for is you're sitting in classrooms with the future. And, well, and they might even be dropouts. You might not see them next semester, but you need to talk to these people. Yeah. Because you don't know who they're going to be. You don't know who. It's, well, I mean, that's it's like I was saying when I met Shane Porter at Troy. I'd have never known Shane Porter if I hadn't gone to school. So even if I wasn't there ultimately to get a bachelor's degree uh, i was making connections and, mm-hmm. and learning and getting outside moving away from my small home environment you know yes. to, to get out and make those connections in 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 school and just to branch out and to go do something different and you know i i think dec- decades and decades ago that's something that because of the culture of music and the way that it used to be, I'm not just talking about, and, and you know, 20 years ago. <coughs> I'm talking about 50 years ago. You you might would have been able to just branch out on your own and go try to play music somewhere as a trombonist, in particular. You know, people still do this all the time outside of school, college, but mm-hmm. um, you might could be able to do do that without college but i think for someone in my situation uh, a horn player you know looking to make those connections it was absolutely crucial for college the connections and not to mention just i I still have just some of my best friends in the world that i'm closer with a lot of my college friends than i am my high school friends um i would say the same yeah yeah no No slight to you high school friends out there that might listen to this. I love all you guys. You know that. (laughs) But to this day, I'm much more closer to a lot of the relationships that I forge. It's just that time of life, though. Yeah, it's that time. You're growing up. High school, you didn't really have a choice. It's where you were from. Yeah. You couldn't control that, but you can control where you go to college. Yeah. And all those people could, too. And y'all, so you have that. You all end up in this weird place. Yeah. In my instance, in, in South Alabama. And all you have to do outside of school is just hang out, you know. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't, like, a lot of things to go do. And yeah. Like, if you lived in a big – Troy, Alabama is this tiny, small town. It's bigger than where I grew up, but it's it's not as big as a, a city like Birmingham or, or much less a, a major city. Right. So, and, yeah. and it's conversations that you'll have just like this. It's like uh, you, you'll – you're talking about things that are worth talking about, at, at least in my opinion, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I still, <coughs> I have friends that I've met in Troy that 
I'll just call, I call tonight and just <clears throat> bullshit with him. Yeah, just so, shoot I mean, the shit. Yeah, yeah. About whatever. Now, uh, what about Les Newby? When would you meet him? Uh, I met him several, several years later. Um, my band that I if you don't mind. St started with uh, my friend Heath Green. We had a band at the time, Fisher Green, real, real creative on our part. But uh, <laughs> we recorded our record here, and that's that's the first time that I really met Les. That was about ten years ago, and I'd met him out before that as well. You know, just from being out on the scene, playing concerts. Would that be like during Verbena or? Uh, no, I didn't know Les when Verbena was happening. Oddly enough, uh, one of the guys that was in that iteration of Verbena when they were kind of taking off uh, father he uh, Nick Davidson played bass in Verbena and his father Rich Davidson was a saxophone player on some of these Temptations gigs so I actually knew Rich his father very very well and I remember um, before I ever knew Les or anybody or knew much about Verbena, I remember uh, Rich, we were driving together to go play a gig in Huntsville with The Temptations, and he played me the Verbena album, which I believe got shelved by a major label at some point. But I remember it being very good and him being very proud of it and yeah. excited and t kind of telling me what those guys had been up to. They had been a letterman and kind of hob hobnobbing with the stars for a brief moment, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I want to yeah. say Verbena. It was RCA Records. Mm -hmm. I think I think that's right. Mm -hmm. uh, Dave Grohl had some connection with it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't nothing. It wasn't no small deal. Mm -mm. <laughs> it was not. It's a shame that in those scenarios, it, and I know this to some degree. I'm, I'm sure still happens, but at that time, you know, major labels had much more of a sway in that business model of the, in the music industry. You know, you get signed to a label, and, and that's a great thing back in the day, and, and it can be now, of course, as well, but you run the risk, in particular back in those days, if, if the label's like, no, we don't see this going anywhere, we're going to stop this in its tracks, and no matter yeah. how, how good it is, you can get on a shelf. So, But things have changed. You know, I always loved the, the Wilco Yankee Hotel Fox trot story in that regard where the label was like no 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 and you know they fought it and it, it ended up being one of the most iconic records of the last 20 years so mm -hmm. you know, it's pretty funny it's still talked about today yeah and that, that's one thing i love about the room that we're in you know here at yeah. oh elegante is um there's been a lot of magic captured right yeah here, I've, right? I've i've played a lot here I've, I've recorded my own stuff here i've played for other people here yeah so uh, just moving on with the uh, the Birmingham timeline is um, uh, getting booked to play with these different bands and um, UAB what was life looking like it was just all music you know at, at this point I'm making a living playing music in whatever way that I can you know there's there's bigger gigs like the Temptations but those don't always you might go months and months without having a big gig like that. And then, so you're playing weddings and you're playing bars. And and by that point, I'd started my own band and was playing 
creating music and writing my own stuff and, and playing out in bars and and doing concerts, DIY concerts or whatever I could do, just this hodgepodge of stuff and, and teaching lessons. So throughout those early 2000s, I was, uh, through those years, you know, it was just uh, lots of, um, lots of just getting out and playing. I, I think for someone like me, a lot, a lot of times it's just survival. Um, I got to get the bills paid. And so I would take just about anything that, came my way you know I would be playing in churches and Broadway musicals that would come through or or that would uh in the local theater company here playing clubs playing weddings playing private parties playing uh creative gigs and concert things and just doing whatever I could during the time how did that work did uh did like you just knew the right people, and like when something like that was coming through, your name was just. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times at that, you know, it's all about just getting your name out. You know, things, things come through, and people call you. People, well, I can't do this, but you should probably maybe try this guy Chad Fisher, and then you never, you never know where th- things are going to lead you. You know, ultimately, um, I think a big, a big part of how I'm still kicking and doing this is is because of those years of making all these connections. I think an important thing f- for me and probably for any young musician, if, if anybody was going to ask me for advice, you know, it was like, uh, don't, don't just be, unless, unless your heart, unless that's where your heart really is, don't just be a, a craftsman or, or a, a sideman, you know. Uh, pursue your art, right? And 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 try to try to become yourself. And I think you know what. Sometimes when I listen to some of the recordings that I made and put out that are still out, you can hear them on Spotify now. You know, some of it I feel like was really on the mark, and other parts of it were like, I wish I could just strike that from the record. Mm-hmm. That was probably not really ready. I probably was more full of myself (laughs) than I should have been. I probably should have acknowledged that maybe this wasn't ready. But, you know, when you're young, you just throw it all out there. Like I said, you know everything when you're younger. But I think during that time, in addition to just making a living playing music, an important thing in hindsight that I was doing was being a creative musician and, and playing at Marty's on Sunday nights and bringing in original music to play with these friends of mine and recording records that that ultimately may never end up doing anything. But uh, ultimately, you, you learn to create. And I think as time went by and where I am now, all of that was invaluable. But... I learned in the process of doing all that how to write for horn sections and mm-hmm. and how to do the craft of it, not just from an artist standpoint, but also from a creative side of a sideman. People started calling me, you know, probably 10, 12 years ago, people started calling me more to come in and do 
horn sections in the studio for their creative projects. Uh, bands like Through the Sparks and uh, Sky Bucket bands. I don't know if you're familiar with a lot of those. Sky yeah, Bucket. yeah. You you mentioned that um, you talked to Wes McDonald. Or, you know, uh, a lot of those guys in that time were doing creative music, mm-hmm. and. Uh, they would a lot of those bands would call me to come in and do horn work for them because they wanted a horn section and i'd kind of gotten the reputation of the guy to call for that so i started doing a lot of that stuff and ultimately that that kind of started me beyond the path of just being a sideman for some of these older legacy bands like the temptations but to kind of move forward with my own name ultimately starting to play with with people like jason isbell and and people like that, you know, um, where, yeah, just, um, I don't know, that's so complicated. There's so much information. What do you, lots of memories and lots of uh, stuff going on back in those days. And, yeah, sure, yeah. man. Uh, yeah. Just to talk a little bit about the, the Jason Isbell and, I mean, even moving into, um, you said, I, I think in a couple of weeks, y'all got like a, a drive-in show with St. Paul and the Broken Bones. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to retell that old tale is um, getting up with those guys and um, what did it look like then and what does it, look, what did it, what does it mean now? Um, well, I'll just go back to Isbel. Um, my friend Brad Guin saxophonist that I played with in a lot of these bands you know, just playing gigs from all these years uh, had uh, he's originally from Tuscaloosa area not not far from where you're from um, Tuscaloosa County and he had lived in Muscle Shoals for a few years and uh, he he was playing on on some of this temptation stuff and, and that kind of stuff and we had met and become friends over the years and he decided uh, at some point he wanted to go to Muscle Shoals and, and just try to get a bunch of guys together and record and, and see what happens. And he had a, kind of a deal worked out with this guy, uh, Jimmy Nutt, who runs a studio called The Nut House in uh, Sheffield, Alabama, which is basically Muscle Shoals. Uh-huh. And we went up there to record this project of Brad's, and uh, a lot of the guys that <laughs> – or Jason and Jimbo. This is right after Jason had uh, had parted with the the truckers. Mm-hmm. Jason and his bassist Jimbo were uh, the one of the guitarists and the bassist on this project. So I got to, I, I got to know Jason on that session. That was around two thousand seven, I think, and we just from hanging out and just you know talked about well hey man if you ever want a horn section just call me yeah and he did uh so we started (laughs) playing shows with him a couple times a year for special occasions bigger shows where he was like i will add a horn section for this particular concert you know and so i would go and i would just listen to his music at the time it was sirens of the ditch and and that uh the second album the jason is one the 400 unit record and I would listen to those, and I would just write horn parts from what I heard on those, and then we'd just show up on the concert and just do it. Just you do know? it yeah. yeah. Um, and by this time, in your in your uh, sight singing or sight singing, but sight playing and 
I mean, you were writing your own piece. And you, yeah, well, you, that, you were by this ready. point, I was actually writing the music myself, yeah. so there wasn't much sight reading involved yeah. since I you had actually the, you conceived knew your, it. You knew yeah. your cues. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I was actually, by this point, the totally one. Totally different era. Yeah, life. by this point, I was the guy actually making sure that the other guys knew where to come in. Uh, but so, yeah, I started playing with Jason in those years. A couple of times a year, we would do special occasion kind of concerts. And... um Ultimately, with, with Jason, probably the coolest thing that we did in those early years, you know, was a, around 10 years ago, Jason called and said, hey, man, um, we're doing this concert for Habitat for Humanity that David Letterman is putting on, but nobody knows this. And uh, Paul, Paul Schaefer is going to be our special guest artist and we, we need a horn section can you put it together for me and i was like well hell yeah i can put that together for you you yeah. got it and that you know i kind of feel like that was around the time that was just before jason's career really kind of took off on a new level mm -hmm. um so we went and did that concert at Workplay, and that was super fun and bigger things were starting to happen by that, that point. was at work yeah, that was at Workplay. It was kind of a secret show where everybody thought they were coming to see Jason, who was pretty popular at that time. Um, obviously not as popular as he is now, but he was a popular regional band. He, yeah, he sure. could sell out Workplay Theater, you yeah, know. Easy. And I, a lot of people just showed up for this, what they thought was a Jason Isbell concert. But he was getting was, so much more. Yeah. And then all of a sudden... Paul Schaefer shows up and all of a sudden David Letterman's in the audience and everybody's like, oh, this is a special yeah. kind of night. And so we started doing bigger things. A couple of years later, we recorded that uh, live live record with Jason. And, um, you know, uh, post, you know, I think there's there's different eras of Jason's career. There's that era when when we first met in the post-truckers and, and I think he would tell you it's well-documented that those were his drinking days. Yeah, and he was, yeah. South, Southeastern happened after sobriety and just really yeah. took him to a different level. Sure. So those years after so Southeastern, we still played with him on occasion, but, you know, I, I think he's just, we haven't done too much, but there's a lot of reasons for that. I think eventually we'll probably do something again. But, um, so yeah, that's how that connection happened. And, you know, I, during during the process of that, uh, his guitarist during during that time when we first met was a guy named Broen Lawler, mm -hmm. uh, who ended up joining St. Paul and the Broken Bones. So that was one of the connections when St. Paul called. You know, it's kind of like yeah. So there's uh, all these connections that you make. You know, we we touched yeah. on this earlier. You you yeah. meet all these people. You make these connections, and yeah. then you never know. You never know how what that all of that's going to line up. Yeah. Yeah. You never you know, don't know how, they're gonna be. where you're going to end up with these people. You know, like I never would know that when I first met Rowan Lawler that at some point we'd be playing Soldier Soldier Field with the Rolling Stones. You, you never know that. Yeah. Yeah. You play with the Rolling Stones? Well, we opened for the Rolling Stones. Fair enough. Yeah. Good enough for me. Yeah, it was pretty <laughs> wild. But uh, St. Paul came later. Um, yeah, let's talk about that for a spell. Well, so you, you yeah. passed them up the first time around. 
Um, well, I suppose. Uh, I had been approached by Les, who works here. He's like, because we were recording the Fisher Green album at the time. And uh, he said, you know, I have these guys, Paul and Jesse, that are coming in here and recording this really great stuff, and they, they were wanting horns on it, but they don't they don't have any money. Uh, yeah. yeah. They don't have any money, and ultimately it, uh, <laughs> things didn't work out because I, I, I'm, I'm too busy scrambling. By this point, I was um, divorced and back out on my own and, uh-huh. and really just scrambling to try to make sure that I had all my bills paid at all times, you know. Yeah. Uh, sinking in credit card debt and just uh, I had to work 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 I couldn't it was not necessarily the best time to be taking uh, a chance or gambling you know uh, hindsight's twenty twenty. I probably would have gotten in a little sooner had I known but Paul and Jesse recorded here and ended up getting uh, a couple of other guys Alan Branstetter who, who plays trumpet with the band now and uh, his buddy Ben Griner, who was a tuba player, who they kind of talked into playing trombone, and they came and did the, the project at the time, and uh, then St. Paul blew up, and about you know a year and a half, two years went by, and Ben left the band, and that's when my buddy Andrew Lee, who had become the drummer, once again, the connections aspect, this is our thread through this interview, the connections. Yes. And he and I had become very good friends just from just running around together, you know, going out and hitting the bars on a random Sunday night or whatever, you know, just hanging out all the time and becoming friends. And he told me about these guys, and he, he's a good drummer, and he was like, you know, these guys are asking me if I want to come play drums with them. I was like, you should. Go for it. Their stuff sounds great. I've already heard it. I couldn't do it myself, but you, you should go do this. So he did, and then St. Paul blew up, and... And so, you know, those, those years passed, and when Ben Ben quit, Andrew, who's one of my best friends, at, mm-hmm. uh, call, called me and was like, hey, man, Ben's quitting. Can you, can you come play? And I was like, yes. Yes, I will. Yeah, I can come play. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can come now. Yeah. And now just, just for today, just for uh, listeners, is uh, you're in the Birmingham area. You, uh, you teach music. I, I have much more so in the past, but yes, I do teach music. I, I don't know yeah. if that's anything that you'd like to plug. If not, I'll take it out. But No, no, no. no. Absolutely. You can contact me for, for any kind of music lessons. If you want, obviously, if you or your child wants to play the trombone, that's, that's easy. Also, just music lessons in general, I can teach. Just if you want to learn the shit we're talking about yeah. tonight, or if you want to learn to write horn parts, or you want to learn music theory, or more about jazz or jazz improvisation. Just from uh, your time being a part of uh, St. Paul and the Broken Bones, and up to now, if I had to ask you anything, um, and this could go across. Uh, your musical landscape as a whole is what are the biggest takeaways other than I mean we've been keying in on connections the whole night yeah is is there anything else that you would say that was just remarkable about how your story has been so far things that people might not be thinking about 
I don't know. That's a that's a hard. I think connections is the answer. Right? Well, I think connections is huge, but obviously you can make connections, but not necessarily be prepared to capitalize on them. Yeah. I think something for me uh, recently, and it's become, this has been something that's been developing over the last couple of years for me personally, but has become even more evident because of the pandemic, because I have nothing to do, is um, just practice and respect for the craft of music. And I feel like when I was younger, uh, I really relied on my natural ability and my aptitude to play music. Yeah. Which is much more of a rock and roll attitude. Just do it, you know. Um, but as a, as a jazz musician or, a, um, a, you know, talking about the, the craft of playing music, I, I feel like you need to hone in on your skill and your, your, your approach to music in, in general, you know, like I didn't, I worked a lot in those years and I learned and I grew in many ways, but I didn't probably practice the trombone as hard as I practice it now. I probably practice the trombone harder now than I ever have in my entire life. And I'm 43 years old and I'm practicing harder than I did when I was in college or when I was first starting out. And, and a lot of that's just because I have the luxury of being able to do that. I, right now, I currently don't have to scramble for money. And, yeah. and also, with the pandemic, I don't have gigs pending every five seconds. But, and I'm not going broke because of that. So all I can do at this point is continue to play music and make music my job and my life. And the only way I can do that right now is to just practice. No, and work and work it and work at this it work at music harder than I ever have. And I feel like that's something I've been really zeroing in on the last couple of years. Pandemic has kind of really driven that home for me. My girlfriend will tell you that <laughs> I practice a lot. You know, to, to, yeah. To, you know, I, I'll say this, man. Is uh, man, I uh, I tore my ACL earlier this year and it I had took an acting gig I hadn't acted in forever and I was acting in this play and I tore it on my way to the fight scene that I was supposed to win during rehearsal ouch yeah and um I had medical bills and at that time I was saving up money for this um little self record I wanted to do yeah like, uh, at that time, I was going to take it to a studio in Columbus, and we were going to record it there. I've recorded there in the past. And it's the same thing that I, that you're telling, is I had never worked so hard in that time to yeah. craft my musicianship. Now, the thing I will say is when you're, and I don't know how you are, 16, 18, maybe you're 23, maybe you're 35 or 42 it doesn't matter is um if you want to do it craft it yeah and as soon as you possibly can when you have a good bearing on it start figuring out who you are yeah and not so much about your influence let them influence you for sure yeah. but 
craft into you. Yeah. Sell that. And there's so much that goes into that conversation that we could talk about for another two hours. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I think where I am now is, is much more like, well, how, what kind of, how, how much further can I take this? I, I live in Alabama. I don't live in New York or L.A. Right. I suppose I could try to make more inroads there if I wanted to leave and go somewhere else. But at this point in history, that doesn't even really seem like the thing to do anyway. I feel like you can truly make it now from anywhere because of the way that information is exchanged. So mm-hmm. it's all about... I just want to be the best version of myself that I can be. And I want to hone in on this music and these, these things that I've been working on for years and years and years. And ultimately, hopefully that pays off for me. And maybe it doesn't, I have no idea. It's, it's, I think you asked me early in the interview, if I ever just felt like when I would get a call, like I'm not ready for this or I'm, I'm an imposter or whatever. I, mm-hmm. I, like like I said, I still feel that every day. Yeah. So I'm all, I'm constantly trying to work my way out of feeling that, even though I know that I'll probably never not feel that way. But I'm just constantly just trying to be the the best, and I feel like I take that much more seriously now after everything that I've been been through and to this point in my life, I, f- I feel like I take that more seriously now than I have at any other point in my life. And we'll see how that pays off. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. even in, in rock and roll, in the most traditional sense, and I mean, you've said it, that you created your own bands and have been involved in different bands that you uh, were the creative mind in it. Yeah. Is... Uh, for all those who grew up playing in band in high school and be like trombone, saxophone, even trumpet, with all that is, well, it's only good till college and then maybe orchestra. But I mean, you're living proof that no, it maybe not. It could I, be. It yeah, could be and, rock and roll. And this is a huge thing that w- when I do teach music, much more so in the past than I do now, but because I just don't have as much teaching as I used to, but. When I would teach my students, I would always encourage them to the nth degree to don't just think that your music is just your school or or your church or whatever. Like you can DIY this, and a lot of times we're just not encouraged to do that. Like, you know, when I was growing up, it was always go to school, get your music education degree, become a band director or a church music minister, and you can do your music on the side because you need to go get a good job or, you know, or go get a job, whatever, if it wasn't a job in music, even go get a job and then you can do your music on the side. Well, you know, I I think God had other plans for me, (laughs) you know, like I just did my, all I did was music. Yeah. Yeah. You know, people have asked me in the past and in this, in this kind of setting, you know, like, when did you decide to play music? Well, I, I didn't decide to play music. I just played music until I found myself doing nothing but playing music, even yeah. for my bills. Yeah. And 
I feel like I'm fortunate that way. There's probably a lot because I'm a trombone player and there's just not many of me. Mm, so, sure. <laughs> you know, if I was a guitar player, I might not be sitting here with you. Yeah, right that's now. the thing. It's like know. in a traditional yeah. sense, you know, that's what I'm saying. It's like yeah. for a keyboardist or a guitarist or, you know, people who would traditionally be able to show up in a new scene in a new town yeah. and could step into the scene and could build something. But you're a trombonist, you know? I think jazz has a lot to do with that. It does. It definitely like, does. Because In, you have these jam sessions that... I was just kind of lamenting this the other day that the jam sessions are kind of slowly fading away. There's still one here in town. But when I was younger, I could go multiple times a week and go find these straight-ahead jazz jam sessions of these older older musicians that have just been around the block, guys like Bo Berry here in town... Sam Williams down in Montgomery, these older jazz musicians that were just integral to my development. You know, we didn't really talk about much of that when we were talking about when I came up, but that yeah. was a whole different part of me when I was in school at Troy and when I first moved here was just going and playing and eventually gigging with all these guys. And for a horn player and someone that wanted to play jazz music, there was that avenue that was able to sustain it past just doing it and from an academic standpoint you know yeah absolutely it's a tradition it's it's like bluegrass or any form of traditional music you know um jazz music is like that and kind of keeps keeps that alive you can go seek it out i think i guess that's maybe what got me on this train of thought is like you can you can be working a day job or you can be in college or high school, but you can go on Tuesday night to Boss Lounge on 20th Street and you can go play straight ahead jazz. And, you can. And you can, you can go and do that. And even if it's just for you to better yourself or to go enjoy yourself, but you can also go and meet people there, meet professional connections there. It's a, it's a big conversation. Yeah. yeah. Cool, man. I think uh, we're in an hour. Let's, uh, I mean, as as things open up, you're going to be a lot busier, but uh, I think you and I need to sit back down again. Oh, we could do this. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think, I, yeah, we could do it by phone line, but we have yeah. a lot to talk about. Uh, um, I like your headspace, man, but yeah. Chad, thank you so much. Hey, thank you. And uh, we're out of here. Yeah, let's do it again. News and notes. That was Chad Fisher. Thank you so much for listening to Porch Talk. If you haven't done so already, I would ask that you would rate and review the show, whatever app it is that you listen to on. It helps a lot. I don't understand the algorithms. We're going to walk it on out right now with some called Dreams. See ya.
When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.